Shri Damodar Janani by Shivaram Swami Chapter 12 Everything Ends in Transcendental Bliss Gopi Bhistabhito Nrityad Bhagavan Bhalavat Kvachit Udgayati Kvachin Mugdhas Tadvasho Dharuyantravat the gopis would say, If you dance, my dear Krishna, then I shall give you half a sweetmeat. By saying these words, or by clapping their hands, all the gopis encouraged Krishna in different ways. At such times, although he was supremely powerful, personality of Godhead, he would smile and dance according to their desire, as if he were a wooden doll in their hands. Sometimes he would sing very loudly at their bidding. In this way, Krishna came completely under the control of the gopis. Srimad Bhagavatam 10.11.7 When the rope dropped from Krishna's midriff, his playful mood evaporated. In the spirit of a mistreated child, Damodar started to cry and tearfully reached his arms towards his father, pleading, Father! Father! Although inwardly disturbed with how his son had been humiliated and endangered, to console Krishna, Nanda Maharaj continued to smile. Bending low, he lifted his son and held him close to his chest. Nandaraj kissed away Krishna's tears and gently rubbed the child's back. His beard moistening with both Krishna's tears and his own, Nanda waited until Krishna was calm and then asked, O oh son, where is the evil-minded person who tied you to this mortar? Krishna leaned towards his father's cheek and wrapped his arms around Nanda Maharaj's neck. Speaking into his father's ear loud enough for others to hear, he replied, Father, it was mother who did it. Nanda Maharaj's eyes found his wife, who was now trying to hide behind her friends. That cannot be, son. You must be mistaken. In response, Krishna raised his voice without looking in the direction of his mother. No, father, she did it. You can ask any of the other gopis here. They were here too. Nandamaraj questioningly looked at the other ladies, but they all lowered their faces and covered their eyes with their veils. Again, Nanda looked to his wife, but she had turned her back to them. Although the king was upset that his beloved son had been placed in jeopardy, he knew that if Yashoda Devi was indeed the culprit, she would deeply regret her conduct. She may have acted recklessly, but she would now be contrite. Of that there was no doubt. He thought, No words of reprimand from me will match Yashoda's self-censure. Nanda turned away from the gopis, he would not chastise his wife. He, more than anyone, knew the depth of her love for their son and how much pain that love must have been now causing her. Harsh words from him would have been like a soothing balm for her. Placing his left knee to the ground, the king sat Krishna on his right thigh. But before he could speak, the boys closed around to comfort Krishna and added, O king, what Krishna says is true. We too saw your queen tie him up. Trying in their own way to pacify Nandamaraj, the boys repeated their earlier message. But Krishna was always safe, because the spirits in the trees protected him. In fact, 
they acted like his servants. Krishna wanted to reach the open space of the Yamuna shore to play, but when he went between those two trees, the mortar got stuck sideways, and the trees fell with a crash. Boom! Boom! dramatized the boys, throwing their arms to the sky. But the trees fell sideways, never even touched Gopal, not even a leaf. Sridama was well known to Nanda Maharaj, and placing a reassuring hand on the king's arm, he continued, Although the beings from the trees were powerful and ornamented with armlets, earrings, and helmets, they bowed before Krishna. Then they said some things that were visibly pleasing to him and left. To where we do not know. With Krishna seated on Nanda's thigh and sheltered by his right arm, the king affectionately wrapped his left arm around Sridama and kissed the boy's forehead. Smiling as if he believed Sridama, Nandaraj remained doubtful and thought, How these boys go on! The stories they dream up! Then the Rajvasis came to reassure Krishna that his ordeal was over. First came the men, then the women. Some came individually, others in pairs, while still others in groups. They caressed Krishna, smelled his head, offered words of comfort, and then joined together on in the sankirtan of Krishna's pastimes as brahmanas recited Vedic hymns. The only ones who did not come were Yashoda and her friends. The queen stood behind a tree, watching the proceedings. Too ashamed to remain, she then returned to the palace, covering her tear-streaked face with her veal. Yashoda's mind reeled, echoing with Nanda's voice. Where is that evil-minded person? Blinded by the tears, she stumbled along the path to the palace, aided by equally stricken maidservants. At the moment that Yashoda reached the palace gates, Rohini, Balaram, and their entourage arrived from Sahara. Without second thought, Yashoda ran into Rohini's embrace, crying uncontrollably with thoughts of her Krishna. My blue lotus! My blue lotus! At the moment that Yashoda reached the palace gates, Rohini, Balaram, and their entourage, news of the fallen Arjuna trees had already reached Rohini Devi. Fearing inauspicious developments, she quickly returned to Gokul. However, neither she nor all-knowing Balaram were expecting such a sorrowful Yashoda. They were momentarily alarmed until they heard joyous sounds from the riverside. Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya Jaya. Then what could be the matter? thought Rohini. Turning to her son for a moment, she said, Go to your brother and bring him back to the palace. Yashoda's friend knew that whatever ailed the queen could be cured by the embrace of her son. Why was Nanda's queen so distraught? She did not know. However, she could guess that Krishna not being with her was a reason of sorts. Handsome Balaram glowed like an early rising moon. As he ran down the hill, he scoured the horizon for the all-too-familiar sight of the Arjuna trees. Where are they? He was to find out soon. Meanwhile, escorted Yashoda to her quarters and sat her on, on a divan, where the queen again released a full force of her sorrow. Yashoda buried her face in Rohini's shoulder, drenching her friend's clothing 
with hot tears of sorrow. Yoshoda was inconsolable. Only when the joyous Rajvasis entered the palace with Krishna was she able to compose herself enough to order her apartment to be locked from the inside. Therefore, as Yashoda continued to quietly weep, Rohini heard the full narration of the day's adventures from an elder gopi. The wise Rohini quickly understood Yashoda's heart and her hurt. Gently resting the queen's head on her lap, Rohini stroked Yashoda's hair, whispering comforting words in her friend's ear. After the Rajvasis had consoled Krishna and his father Nanda Maharaj, wanted to purify his son from the day's misfortune, and so decided on a bath in the Yamuna. As they walked hand in hand to the riverside, Balaram caught up with them, bowing before Nandaraj and offering respects to the elders. Balaram then embraced his little brother and showered Krishna with a downpour of questions. What is this Damodar name? Why did mother tie you up? Did you really pull down those trees? But Krishna was reserved. Just when he most needed his brother and his other mother, he was left to himself. Had they been present during the binding episode, things would have transpired differently. He felt abandoned and would not respond in his usual affable manner. Balaram was taken aback. But a wink from Nandamaraj told him to be patient. Balaram took the king's other hand, and they walked together to Raj Ghata, accompanied by singing Rajbasis and mantra-chanting Brahmanas. The birds that had been witness to the day's events also followed Nanda's retinue, as did the demigods above. Although the thunderclap that had engulfed Gokul had passed, it was obvious to all concerned that the tension between mother and son had not and as much as they would be allowed, everyone was keen to witness how that tension would be resolved. Rajgat, also known as Nandagat, was the king's own bathing place, and the one used by the men of the royal household. Directed by pure-hearted brahmanas, reciting auspicious mantras, Nandamaraj and his two sons performed a purificatory bathing ceremony, which was followed by protective rituals and completed by an offering of auspicious articles like rice, argya, and durva grass. In this way, the king sought auspiciousness for Krishna, who was himself the source of all auspiciousness. After the ceremonies were concluded, Krishna, Balaram, and their friends played and swam until Nanda's servants arrived with gifts to distribute to those present. The two princes came out of the water dressed in fresh clothes, and donned flower garlands. Under their father's direction, they then distributed offerings suitable to the recipients and received abundant blessings in return. Having secured the good fortune of his son and accompanied by musicians playing drums and cymbals, Nandamaraj headed back to his palace, wondering whether arrangements for supper had been made. Indeed, they had. Service to Krishna was the only thing that would extricate Yashoda Devi from the quicksand of sorrow. While the Rajvasis were escorting Krishna and his father home, Rohini reminded the queen that her son had not eaten since morning, and even then a meal unfinished. As sad and embarrassed as she was, Yashoda immediately set about the task of organizing supper. She guided her maidservants and friends to the palace kitchen, 
and then began cooking there herself. Meanwhile, Rohini Devi called for her assistance, and together they set a table in the grand dining hall, presuming that there would be many guests for supper. After seeing that the meal for Krishna and her husband was moving apace, the weight of guilt again submerged Yashoda in its grime. Her beautiful complexion blanched, her hands trembling, and her throat would not vibrate a sound. With great difficulty she requested Rohini to take charge of the cooking and serving the meal, and then retired to her own chambers. Locking the doors, Yashoda stayed alone with her sorrow, waiting until fate would again unite her with Krishna. It would be a while. In the realm of transcendence where moments feel like millennia, a while would feel like a lifetime of Brahma, and that is what the evening would feel like Raja's queen. The interval between Nanda's freeing Krishna and their return to the palace, Krishna was exposed only to the loving sentiments of the Rajvasis. With the reverential sons of Kuvaragan, he again felt like a little boy, but a pouting little boy. Krishna felt that he had a just reason to pout. In a childish mindset, he reviewed all the injustices perpetrated by his mother and so behaved with petulance. Yogamaya was influencing Krishna in a way that would enable him to enjoy newer pastimes and enrich his mother's love. By remaining aloof from her, both Yashoda and Krishna would taste the poisonous nectars of separation and the ensuing ecstasies of union most pleasing. It was the way of divine love the way of ever-fresh, expanding love. When supper was ready, accompanied by a blissful retinue of gopas, Nanamaraj and his sons entered the dining hall. Everyone spoke about the day's events, the endless rope, the fallen trees, the mysteries of Krishna. The happy chatter reverberated throughout the palace and painted a familiar picture in the mind of the reclusive Yashoda, who remained seated on the edge of her bed, staring at the door, waiting for Krishna to open it, but he did not. His meal complete, his sons fully satisfied, Nanamaraj walked Krishna and Balaram to his expansive chambers, where they rested together on his feather-soft bed. This was a rare occasion. Krishna would usually sleep with his mother, and it was Balaram who would regularly nap with the king. His mind floating in ecstasy, Nanda felt the transcendental comfort of bliss personified on his left and existence personified on his right. He thought, my queen's loss is my gain. After a half an hour, minds and bodies rested. Fathers and sons went to the cowshed to oversee the milking and take a tally of the day's yield. When the king had completed his duties, instructing his two boys in varied aspects, he took them to a special stall. In that stall was a beautiful white cow, which Nanamaraj would personally milk. The king of the cowherds sat on a golden bench and had his boys sit besides him. Patiently, he took their little hands and showed them how to milk his majestic cow, which repeatedly licked Balaram's face with love. Collecting a half bucket of milk, they stood up and retired to Nanda's seat just outside the barn. With a jeweled cup, Nanda repeatedly scooped out the milk for the two boys and had them drink their fill as a substitute for their mother's breast milk. And since some of Krishna's friends were also with them, the king satisfied their thirst as well. At this time, 
there would usually be evening festivities, but this evening was the grand festival of Diwali. And as in the years in the past, with the approach of darkness, the residents of Gokul were completing preparations for the celebration of Lord Ramachandra's return to Ayodhya. But the festival would be different this year. Nandamaraj thought it wiser to resolve the conflict between mother and son, or rather the conflict the son had with the mother. He and his sons would not attend. Thus the entire royal family would be absent from the long-awaiting Diwali function. The king spoke to his brothers and requested them to take charge of the festivities. He would try to reunite mother and son, and if successful, they would join later. Taking the boys with him, Nandamaraj returned to his palace and entered the grand hall, where they would usually host dignitaries and family evenings. Rohini Devi and the wives of Nanda's brother were already waiting. It was a light snack of the finest sheer, sweetened milk and other favorites. Dressed in their most festive clothing and ornamented with the finest jewelry, the women appeared like descended goddesses taking darshan of the Supreme Lord and his first expansion. But they were not the wives of the demigods. They were gopis, and their thoughts were not for Krishna's divinity, but for his happiness. While offering Krishna and Balaram sweets, the ladies addressed Nandamaraj, O king, while you were inaugurating the Diwali festival elsewhere, a wonderful incident took place in your capital. That wonder ended in a near tragedy when the two Arjuna trees fell close to Krishna. Fortunately, by the grace of Narayan, your son was not harmed, but your wife has been devastated in another way. Krishna climbed up on his father's lap, Balaram on his mother's. The ladies continued, sometimes speaking together, sometimes individually. Your celestial wife feels sorry for having tied Krishna and for leaving him unattended, but her sorrow has increased a thousandfold by her son's neglect. As a result, she has not eaten anything, nor can she speak to anyone. Sharing their queen's fate, her maidservants are acting in the same way. Nandamaraj rocked Krishna on his knee and smiled unhappily, revealing deep sympathy for his wife. Aware of Krishna's mood, however, the king replied on his son's behalf, What can we do? That best of the gopis can now see for herself the pitfalls of succumbing to anger. Some of the gopis were taken aback by such an indifferent reply. Others, like Rohini, recognized the king's intent. He was using a state diplomacy to bring about reconciliation. A gopi tearfully replied, Were your soft-hearted wife to hear such things, she would be devastated. Yashoda did hear something of what was taking place. Unable to tolerate separation from her son, even more so the pain of being rejected by him, she asked her most confidential maid to inform her what was taking place in the grand hall. And while the maidservant brought some news of the events, she could not bring herself to convey their essence.